I decided this way and I don't look at back, you know, because you, you, you can always have more. You, it's always difficult to to decide when to sell, you know. I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's a common for every, every business. It's like, if I stay longer, I can get more. Well, how much is the risk by going there? Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Eden Basic, the founder of Fariza, a London-based pizza franchise focused on delivery, which he sold to his largest competitor, Pizza Express. Eden was a refugee from war-torn Bosnia and had to leave school before his final exams to escape to London with nothing in his pocket and not being able to speak English. Eden picked up odd jobs to make ends meet until eventually launching his first pizza delivery business, which turned into more than 30 locations and his eventual sale of the business, making him a multimillionaire. In our conversation, Eden shares understanding market trends to know when to invest and when to sell. You need to know your exit strategy to make the right decisions while you're building your business and how to be ready when your buyers come knocking. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eden Basic. Eden, thank you so much for being here today. I know you're in the UK, so I appreciate you managing the time zones for us. I've been really excited to talk to you because, you know, we talk about an entrepreneurial journey and you have an incredible journey from Bosnia to the UK, not speaking the language and somehow the entrepreneurial spirit pouring out of you, you're able to build an amazing business in a relatively short period of time and then have an exit and go on to build more businesses and consult with founders and you know help people through their entrepreneurial journeys so i feel you know very similar mission uh to what we are doing here at exitwise trying to help and educate just really excited to hear your story i know you got some amazing learnings for all of us and just so you know mark cuban had this spot and when you were available when we were able to book you i just immediately bumped him so thank you for being here Uh, Thank you for having me, Todd. I'm really happy to do this. And I think the best place to start, I think, in in your journey was maybe quickly you can tell me what life was like in Bosnia, what your plans were, know you're in school, and then the world changes, right? And you've got got to pull an audible and get yourself out of there. Can you give us that background? Yeah, of course. I have a rather unusual story, (laughs) at least to say. I grew up in Mostar. I don't know if you know the place. It's the town with no. the bridge. We had a famous bridge which was destroyed and uh, it was rebuilt afterwards. I studied civil engineering in my town. I had a girlfriend. I was not planning to go anywhere. I had a, you know, it was it was good life. My study, I was on the last exam of my civil engineering when the war happened. And I left, you know, it was very chaotic and, you know, not very nice. I came to London with a the, with the girlfriend. That was in May 1992. Um, yeah, it was a very traumatic experience, you know. We, I was catapulted from one life to another in, in the country where <laughs> I didn't particularly want to go. I didn't want to go anywhere, but yeah, I thought it would be six months I didn't speak English when I came here. I thought in six months everything will be sorted, you know, it will go back to normal. Well, 30 years later, I'm still here, married <laughs> with a Sicilian woman and 
two children and I live in London. Yeah, it's, that's a very unusual story, but, you know, what, that, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, I guess. But you came to London really not speaking the language, really nothing, right? A, a no money as a refugee. And can you take us from kind of that moment to what jobs did you have and how did you decide, like, I got to be an entrepreneur, I got to change my life this way? Yeah, absolutely. I came here, I, I was, you know, I spoke French when I came here. That was the language we, we learned. And that girlfriend of mine, she left me with one of my best friends who was here. So I literally stayed by myself in the middle of the big city. <laughs> yeah, so at first, my first job was washing the dishes in the Italian huge restaurants on two floors without dishwasher you know, working morning, evening. Um, and yeah, from there, I the job was kind of almost like an escape from the reality of it was, what was happening in the, in, you know, during the war and, you know, lots of, lots of things. And as a result, I progressed. I became head chef. Yeah, I went to be, you know, from the manager, area manager, operations manager for Starbucks, actually. I worked for Starbucks in kind of corporate and then I always had this, looking back now, I, I, I didn't know that at that time, uh, I had this entrepreneurial mind to, I just feel that everything can be improved and done differently, you know, literally. I remember I had lots of ideas with, with a friend of mine. One of my ideas was to start when you have a taxis coming to pick you up and, you know, and driving you back home. If you have your company car, you go somewhere you leave your car, you have a few drinks, you can't drive back. Then the next day you have to go and pick up the car. I was thinking, why there is no little motorbike? If somebody come with a motorbike, foldable, they call them, they put the motorbike in, in the boot of the car, drive you back home, and it's all easy, you know, in your own car. And I was sitting in, in the in the terrace of his restaurant, and, and this little motorbike passed, you know. <laughs> I said, look, this is my idea. So I had lots yeah. of, that's how my mind operates, you know. I see opportunities in, in everywhere. So I think my journey from doing different jobs was mainly to, to gain the experience, to understand how, how does it work to start the business here? What, what does it, you know, what do I need? How do I raise funds? How do I go from the idea to, you know, to, to launch? And yeah, so, you know, when this opportunity came, we started a, a pizza company, essentially, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which uh, we realized that, you know, that there was a, at that time in London was the market, pizza delivery market especially, was absolutely huge, you know, and it was dominated by, these big corporate players like Domino's and, you know, Pizza Hut and so on, which, you know, they were doing a great job what they were doing. But I felt uh, it, it can be done differently. You know, that this definitely can be improved, especially when it comes to the food quality. Um, so with my co-founder, we, we kind of played with this idea how can we improve? Where the where where are the opportunities? What can be done better? So and, and the list was getting bigger and bigger, you know. So we went to we wanted to start Napolitan Pizza by the meter, like a pizza metro, which is mm. very traditional. Yeah, it's very traditional in Naples, you know, for the big families. And yeah, we found a pizza chef from Naples. 
we didn't have enough. We didn't have lots of funds to invest. You know, we, we kind of see what we have ourselves and, you know, some friends and family. And a friend of ours was, he's a graphic designer. We, he, you know, he did the logo and, and the name. Another friend was an architect. We, you know, so the colors and the, the design. Yeah, we just started. I mean, it was just crazy busy. You know, everybody loved it. Everybody was writing about it. It was like a big deal, which we, we didn't realize really, but it was. So really the, the jobs that you had coming here, right? Managing Starbucks, running a restaurant, being a chef, you know, down to the dishwashing, you really learned kind of the food and beverage industry within within the London market and saw this opportunity. So you jump and it's it's Ferrezza. Is that how you say the name of the the business? Yeah. Yeah. It's made and, of two okay. words. Higher than a pizza. So Ferrezza. Ferrezza. So, okay, so you build this company up, essentially funding it. Sounds like you funded it yourself and friends and family. You took on some institutional investment at some point. Can you tell me a little bit about that and the decision to do that? Yeah, it was a set of kind of coincidences which really happened. The, the first site was doing exceptionally well. Then we went for the second site. We ran out of some cash flow problems and... Uh, uh, one of our customers who is, who is a music producer, so he, he lent us the money to open. I mean, it's just kind of crazy things as, as a startup. I, I guess a lot of people go through the similar stuff. Um, and then we met somebody who introduced us to accountant who was uh, raising money for the businesses like ours. And he liked what we were doing and, you know, introduced us to VC who loved the idea, loved everything we were doing and really liked us as a team as well. So they invested, that was the first time, the first round. And that investment allowed us to, you know, to open more sites and to grow, uh, to grow the company. Ultimately, how many uh, restaurants did you open? So at the end, we had 17. 17. Okay. So you're growing, right? You're profitable. You've got investors. So you know, you're going to have to have an exit at some point. What I love about your story is there there was a time where you decided maybe we should take this to market and, and hired a, like a corporate finance group to explore mm-hmm. what those options were like. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? And maybe just up to that stage, what made you think that, hey, maybe this is a good time to to consider a liquidity event? Um, well, I think well, my partner and I, we knew what we wanted to get out of this business. So we, we always had the vision to, to, to exit. You know, mm-hmm. it was lots of passion, lots of everything else, but essentially it, it is a business and we wanted to build up to the, to the certain size where we, we could get out what was for us was enough. It was our target. Okay. Um, so when we were at that stage, we, you know, we obviously we knew our numbers and EBITDA and the, what the multiples are uh, at the time for the businesses like ours. Uh, we decided to, you know, to go through the sales process. And yeah, it, it was completely something which I, you know, I never experienced, never experienced before. Nothing prepared me to, to actually go through what, what the sales process means. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always the first time. So yeah, it, it, it's very, 
how can I put it, unique experience for <laughs> for us at least. But I, I believe for most of the founders, it, it is something which you experience, you know, once, hopefully. Yeah. Or, uh, and, and every experience, every sales process is different. Every deal is different. Every, everything is, is unique to yourself. We didn't succeed the first time with corporate finance, unfortunately, for many different reasons. I think I, I felt there was a disconnect in in uh, in how much they actually knew the the market and you know the what would that I, I just feel that the matching the the real you know potential buyer with us was mismatched in a way you know mm-hmm. it, 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 it didn't uh, it didn't work out you know we had a people from Australia the one person had two or three businesses inquiring and completely it's just a waste of time you know most of the time <laughs> yeah yeah can I talk a little bit about that I, first I think it's it's great that you had your number in mind right you're thinking about building a business with an exit you get alignment with your partner of what is the number that we're looking for and then you're talking about EBITDA, right? You understand that that is going to be the driver, right, of of an exit or a valuation, and you understand the multiples in the food and beverage space, maybe particularly in in pizza places. So, right there, you know more about this than than this corporate finance group, which essentially would be an investment bank here in the U.S. You know more about your industry than they do, and I think that that is the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs make when they think about or go to sell a business, is they're just hiring a big name, a big name institution that doesn't know anything really anything about the space. They don't know the buyers intimately. And so you get exactly what you just got, which was some person from some other country that has some money and owns a couple of businesses and may be interested in a a sale. Those just rarely work out. So having very industry-specific investment bankers who understand your business, not just your industry, but what makes your business special, and to whom that business is going to be really, really valuable, that's what creates the, the best outcomes. So I appreciate you sharing that. That experience was ultimately three years before you actually sold the business. So what happened? Yeah. You guys go back to the drawing board, and what happens over the next three years? Well, what happened uh, over the next three years was that our fund, who invested in the VC, who invested in, in us, they, they typically had like, I think 500,000 for each investment. And so they had a very big portfolio, which they mm-hmm. need to, it was coming to, to an end. So they needed to exit. So as a result, they were either selling the portfolio to other investment companies and, and so on. So we saw the opportunity to buy them out. The valuation was good. And we, the way we organized this is by getting a group of angels who was represented by one guy. Yep. And yeah, there was, uh, we, we completed, we bought them out. So we were, you know, there was a different chapter, different different vibe, you know, different uh, dynamics in the company, having business agents as opposed to corporate finance. Uh, sorry, as opposed to like institutional investors. Mm-hmm. They were more, not so much, no, not involved, but they, they were more on the ball. You know, they knew they knew the numbers and they were more more demanding in a way, uh, but also more supportive. Sure. So we we had a plan. We wanted to 
double the size of the company and then exit. So we are talking, we wanted to go around 30, 35 sites. Yeah, so in order to do this, we, as you know, you know, that the, the journey of every company, the, the profitability and EBITI goes up and down depending which stage you are. So we need to invest in, in, into the structure in order to grow. So we didn't really look at the numbers in terms of profit. All we wanted to set the solid base from which we can introduce processes, procedures, and, and then roll out, quite aggressive rollout. But it didn't work out that way. <laughs> <laughs> the timing was a little different. Yeah, it never does. Yeah. So the, yeah. that's the. So what happened in, in at that time? We had lots of the market has changed. I'm not going to go into specifics on, on on this particular market, but we had the aggregates, for example, coming in, and it was too many moving parts, which we we just didn't know what is going to happen. You know, is it going mm-hmm. to go this way? Is a standalone pizza place? Can we actually survive? And it was too many unknowns. And at the same time, we had uh, lots of lots of inquiries, you know, d- directly to to buy the company or to invest. Which we always say no, but in that particular time, we just felt it was it was unusual that you know big players are are being interested to to buy our company. So I think we are in this position where. It's almost like a crossroads, misalignment of what we wanted to do, our strategy, and what the market conditions were. That's really interesting. Let me step back and ask a couple questions. So, so you, your first investor, a venture firm, their fund has reached kind of its its uh, portfolio sure. length, maybe it's seven, ten years, and they want to return capital to their investors. So they're really looking for an exit. But your business is not ready to exit. So you're bringing in another investor to buy out your position, essentially with that venture capital firm, right? You didn't yeah. buy the whole venture portfolio. You just bought yourself out. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now you've got a different type of investor, more hands-on, somebody that really understands the business. And together you're deciding that you're going to go from 17 locations to 35. Did you and your partner have the conversation around what that would mean for you? What the, the difference you project in outcome would be that return on investment? Because you're going to spend a lot of time, right? And you're going to take on more risk, open up these locations. So I'm assuming you want higher numbers. Have, did you have that discussion? Yeah, this, this is this kind of strategic decisions when it comes to timing and the exit. It, it affects mm-hmm. everybody differently on, on the board, especially uh, founders, co-founders. Everybody's situation is different. Everybody's expectations are different. So any big, big changes in strategies are, can cause, in our case, for example, it causes lots of uh, disagreements. Mm-hmm. But I think you need to, from my my experience, what I I always look at the risk and, and the return. What is the risk of doing A and going for this over the three three years period or doing something, you know, something on a shorter period? And the risks were too too great, even with a bigger return. So if we stayed, for example, we, we could stay another two or three years have much bigger return. So mm-hmm. what are the risks between now and, and this exit? You know, and, and this is the balance which you really need to 
you need to judge for yourself and see is it worth doing or not. Because now you have a certainty. This is your certainty right now. And in three years' time, which you have something which is double or triple, but it's uncertain. Are you ready to take that risk after X amount of years running a building it up to the stage where you are? So those are the questions which every business will have, uh, every founder will need to decide for themselves. I decided this way and I don't look at back, you know, because you, you, you can always have more. You, it's always difficult to to decide when to sell, you know. I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's a common for every, every business. It's like, if I stay longer, I can get more. Well, how much is the risk by going there? And it's such an interesting conversation. And really what I'm thinking about is when you brought on that other investor, right, to buy out the venture firm, now they have expectations for growth, right? They're investing at a certain level. You probably had a very fair evaluation because you went through a process with the corporate development group and, and they want growth. So you and your partner have to be really aligned. Well, okay, well now we're going to sink in all of this time, effort, and like you've said, take on more risk. So we got a financial partner that's dr- helping drive that strategy. And, and that's, a, that's an interesting spot for entrepreneurs to be in. But I can hear that you guys were asking yourselves all the right questions. Is the risk, is the reward worth the additional risk? And you don't look back, right? You made your decision. And over three years, you put a growth strategy together that is going to impact EBITDA, right? You're going to give up profitability, potentially distributions in order to grow the business and have an outcome later. But it doesn't quite work out that way in your case, right? The market changes and you've got inbound interest. And so talk to me about the decision of like, okay, maybe this didn't fit the the playbook exactly, but now is the time to sell. Walk me through that decision. Well, I think that the, in this particular industry where I'm in, that there is um, there are exponential changes. So you had the Lots of technology influenced the change. For example, you had, you know, big aggregates like Deliveroo, Uber Eats coming in and, you know, it was taking away. It was challenging the, the existing habits of, of, of our customers. You know, so instead mm-hmm. of going one place that it's like a uh, aggregate, it, it, the world is say itself, it gives you more choice as a consumer. So it was too many movements in, 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 uh, on the market, which were outside our control at the time. It was very difficult to, to predict which way this, those changes are going to, how they'll affect our, our current model. So that, that's one thing. The other thing was that the, all, all the places like big, big groups, restaurant groups, who were not doing delivery, there was a form of fear of, fear of missing out. So they, everybody mm-hmm. wanted delivery and everybody wanted to have entrance to the market to somehow to get to this you know their own piece of cake of this huge pie which was uh, you know it was quite a big delivery everybody yeah the, the changes are happening exponentially fast and that's why we had lots of approaches from you know for the, from the big groups to use Firesa to enter the market and to develop their own delivery arm potentially so you know you got the negative side of, of market changes and which which is unpredictability how it's going to affect the, the current model but on the other side was this big demand which was driving the price up for the on the exit 
yeah so i think when you when you weigh the risks of staying and you know being unpredictable against demand somebody wants to buy the company it's just a decision time to to decide yes or no but as i said it's it's not an it's probably the most difficult decision of my entrepreneurial journey was this to decide to sell because wow. <laughs> because you know <laughs> it is uh, you know um and the other thing I want to mention here, Todd, is that going from 0 to 10 or 10 to 20, then from 15 to 35 sides, it requires different set of skills mm-hmm. uh, from the founders. You know, it, it's a fast scale up. You're talking yep. about, you know, two, three, four sides a year, potentially, which is, uh, you know, that, that's when, when the, the corporate side and processes, procedures, and, and, the, and the structure you need to build in order to grow, you know, to have sustainable growth. And that the set of skills is completely different than from your, you know, early stage startup and a founder. So there was another risk which I I had in my mind as uh, are we actually, as a current team, are we able to execute this properly? It's a huge question mark. <laughs> And that's fantastic. That idea of skill set at different stages of the entrepreneurial journey, to me, really, really hits home. I knew I was very good at the product market fit and uh, getting unit economics right and getting kind of to that first 25 people. But that scale, that kind of... uh, delivering kind of institutional controls in a business was not where my skill set was. And that was largely what drove the exits that I had. And it's not that you can't go out and solve that and hire the right people, but just the knowledge that the, and the awareness that it requires a different skill set, I think is um, impressive to understand. So you had market conditions, you had opportunity because you had an infrastructure and a knowledge base that other the incumbents really wanted, right? The other the large pizza places to, in, in order to compete with the deliveries and the Uber Eats. And then the awareness of like, how big can we get? Does it match our skill set? In all, all to drive this decision of an exit. And you saying that's the hardest decision that you had to make as an entrepreneur or somebody coming as a refugee from war to eventually start a, com- a company in a country where you didn't speak the language. That is uh, something to be said. All right, so... You go into this process, you've got inbound interest, and this time you don't hire help. You don't hire an investment bank or a corporate finance group to walk you through this, but you've got presumably more sophisticated investors on your side that maybe understand some of this sale process. Talk me through like what happens next. Yeah, that's correct. We had uh, Our team was small, but it was really, really well-connected. Especially from the uh, business angels, the group they they bought uh, VC, there was a person who was on board and he was part of the team, uh, and this guy was really really switched on in terms of running the businesses, exiting the businesses, and having the right connections in in, in our you know industry. Yeah, so we we just felt after the first experience with the corporate finance, we. We kind of knew we, we don't really need this, you know. We, we know what what happened the last time and how uh, how the process is run, and you know the group of buyers and doing the deals. So we just went for it ourselves. We had you know quite good accountancy firm. We had a good lawyer, corporate lawyer, 
a good finance team within the company, you know, a financial director, clearly divided responsibilities, who is doing what. And yeah, and, and it was just a question of getting the deal done. And that was John. <laughs> this person I, I'm talking about, that, that was his expertise. He knew how to talk the language. He knew how to make a deal. So Ed and John, is he an employee at your company or is he on the investor side? He, both. He was representative of business angels. So they, you know, mm-hmm. the group, they, they put him on board to work with us and to basically keep them informed. Okay, that's great. So you have somebody that has M&A experience. And then what I also heard is you have a financial director, right? Because that person is going to be leaned on incredibly hard to get the right data, the correct data, right to your buyer. How did you choose the buyer? It sounded like you had multiple interested parties. How did you select ultimately Pizza Express? Is that correct? Yes, it's difficult to say how we decided this. I think we obviously comes to you know, there's a buyer needs to submit the offer. Then you go through your head of turn and then it goes from there. So, you know, there is so many different variables in, in this process from the price, for example, mm-hmm. to the structure of the deal. You know, is it, uh, is there earn out or there isn't earn out? Is there, uh, you know, how much is upfront? What is deferred? Why? What happens with the convertible loans? You know, so one, you have to measure all of these kind of uh, offers when you receive and uh, and make your decision. And, you know, it's always good to have one or two offers and at the same time and to compete. So we had that and then we decided to go exclusively, you know, to, the, to accept the offer and go through the due diligence stage. I just want to touch on that process for our listeners. The idea at the beginning of a process to know what you're really looking for. Are you looking for a full cash out? I don't want to work for the acquirer. I just want to walk away. Or do I want to sell you know, majority control of my business, but stay invested and be part of the management team and grow for a future exit? You're like, are, th- are there deferred payments? Are there earnouts? All of those things really need to be thought about ahead of time. And you need to tell whoever's representing you, whether it's John and yourselves, uh, what is the goal, right? And be aligned around that. And then it is the job of your representatives, your investment bankers to go out and get what we call indications of interest, which will say, hey, uh, we're interested in this price range and we can accommodate a full cash offer or rolled equity taking your equity and investing it back into the business, or we want the full team, we don't want the full team. And then you get to look at these indications of interest, which are not exclusive, and your investment banker negotiates each one of them, trying to get everything that you want, including purchase price, up to exactly where you need to be to to be really comfortable with your decision. And then ultimately, you go with the single party into a letter of intent. You negotiate that letter of intent to where everybody is comfortable and you're signing. And that is the essential document that is used to create a purchase agreement, which has all the terms in it, right? And and while you're getting that document together, you're doing due diligence, right? With a single buyer. So now you're at that stage. So can you talk to me about 
that due diligence process because I know you talk about it as it is a second full-time job and nothing can prepare you for this. I think there's lessons here and we've heard this countless times from, from our guests, but please, I'd love yeah. to hear your story. Yeah, I think the, the, the first thing was we had very unusual offer from uh, this particular company. It wasn't earn out, it was 100%, you know, buy all up front. And yeah, it was very, you know, for us, it was very easy to decide to go for this stage where we were on. Now, the due diligence was six months. And we, when you agree on the price, price, uh, our valuation was based on EBITDA. Mm-hmm. And whether it's adjusted or not adjusted, but it's, it's a number which, you know, we need to deliver. So the longer due diligence goes on, the, the longer there are chances to, you know, that something can go wrong or something can go in your favor. But normally, if things go in your favor, you don't really get uplift on the price. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Correct. If you, if you, yeah, if you mess up and you miss your numbers, then they're just waiting to slash the price. That is, is, the, is the aim of the game. But what is quite challenging in this time was you have to keep perform. You have to keep performance anyway. But particularly in this period, you know, you must not drop the ball. It has to be everything has to be right. But at the same time, the due diligence is not an easy thing to, to run. You know, we had a list of items to to deliver, which is you know, it's almost like a full time job itself without having more resources in the companies to do this. So we just, everybody has to do more. Okay. So, you know, going for property from compliance, for example, the compliance was a big thing because the big companies, when they buy the smaller companies, the fine, if something goes wrong in, in compliance, is based on turnover. So if you have your business stresses, you know, one billion turnover, the fine is going to be X percentage of that. Hmm. While when you are small, the fine of, you know, our turnover is obviously, you know, proportional is much smaller. So it's, it's for the right reasons. They really need to go deep into, into checking every single thing from, you know, from the employment and is there any cases or the property or you know food and hygiene health and safety numbers i think the numbers were the easiest part actually the re- all the rest was quite really really substantial amount of work so i have the two jobs to do and you have to do them right both of them yeah. and the closer you are getting to this kind of completion the, the pressure grows I see it over and over and over. I think what's maybe unusual that jumps out at me is six months due diligence. I would tell you, if you have an investment bank, 90 days is what they're going to allow, right? You're not going to pick a buyer that is extending beyond that. I mean, we're running a deal right now that is 30 days. And you want that as a tight a window as you can. And obviously, you're running, like you said, doing two jobs. But the changes in your numbers, is it's less likely to happen in a short period of time, right? And you're just introducing risk uh, the longer this goes out. And you're absolutely right. They are looking for reasons to reduce the purchase price or put kind of some onerous term back in to the agreement if you miss your numbers. So important to continue to grow your business. We tell our clients, you got to run your business as if you're not selling because it could, it could fall apart. Right. So you kind of said that you got to grow it anyway, 
But now you've got this extra load of due diligence on top of you. It makes it incredibly difficult. So you were able to to hold the numbers. You knew it was based on EBITDA. And, but you had invested in the business. So EBITDA was probably not maxed out the way you could have if you knew you were selling the business at the time. But anyway, you're getting down to the goal line here, right? Incredibly stressful. Uh, what else? How, how did it finish? Well, that, that was, uh, it, I was always told that it's going to be, you know, it's not going to be easy process. And something I really didn't understand until I experienced it. Because I was thinking, well, what's the worst can happen? Uh, we are, you know, we have all the departments, we have all the files, everything is there, you know, the numbers, the employees, file, fuel, hygiene, the data room we already started a long time ago, which was a good thing, actually, to start preparing mm-hmm. for this. But I think the deal itself is, you know, is changing all the time. We, we had the situations where we walked out, we said, okay, well, this is not happening. You want to, you know, they want to reduce the price, so we walk out, and then, you know, we came back, and they walk out a few times. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason was that even as, as as a big player, you know, that doesn't mean you have a lot of experience in in uh, buying and you know dealing and selling different companies. And also for us, it was the first time, so there was this clash of almost like inexperience in <laughs> in emergency sure. acquisitions. Um, yeah, so we were we had a small team which was very tight. We were in the city, in, in the office. Every time there is a question or email coming in, you're just thinking, oh, what now? You know, what is next? <laughs> so it was like a backwards and forwards, and and I think it was February in uh, in London, which is kind of cold and grey. Friday night, but those things always happen on Friday night. It's not, it's not a Thursday, sunny afternoon where you come out and all your friends are waiting and you kind of uh, buy drinks for everyone. <laughs> it was nothing like this at all. So after days and, you know, like sleepless nights and hours and hours and hours in the office and answering backwards, forwards, I just thought this is never going to happen. And, you know, it was kind of afternoon, raining, and I went out for walk. And I kind of gave up. I just thought, well, this is too much. It's just like, it's too many times it happens, too many problems. And um, and then I was called for signing. And it was just like this. We went to, to their big office with, you know, like long tables and lots of different papers. We signed. And that was it. <laughs> and it was a Friday night in the city, which is, you know, financial district of London. It's not the busiest time. People go home, you know, earlier. Yeah. Thursday is Friday. Friday, they finish early. So it was completely empty. There was eight, nine o'clock in the evening, 10 maybe. There was nobody. My wife was in Italy with my kids. I was completely exhausted. I was just really, really, really tired. And it's like, I need to call somebody. Yeah, <laughs> <And> yeah. It- <laughs> You know, <laughs> there was nobody to call, you know, it was late. It was actually kind of 11, almost close to midnight. And uh, there was almost like a last train going home. I just came back home, opened a bottle of wine, have a glass of wine. And so well done. <laughs> and I went to sleep. Good for you. Good for you. Was, I, it was, yeah, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a big party at all that came afterwards. 
uh, let me jump back a little bit. So what's interesting, right, is all the emotions. You're getting down to the goal line. The deal fails 10 times before it goes through. And that happens on every deal. So listeners should understand if you go to sell your business, it is going to feel like this thing is going to end and not going to happen many, many times. And, you know, a great investment banker, a great M&A team helps you manage through that. They get those little negotiations. They get buyers back to the table. They bring you back to recognizing where value has changed, right? You said six months, the market can change so much in that period of time. But managing those emotions, that that is really tough. And then everyone says something very similar is the actual signing. Whether you thought it was going to happen or not, it's fairly anticlimactic. So we like to ask the question, right, who did you call? Because you need to celebrate this moment with someone, yeah. not just your, you know, your partner that might be sitting next to you signing. And so you had nobody to call. You opened a bottle of wine. That's great. And then that you clearly celebrate later. But I think the point is that these are fairly anticlimactic moments compared to that due diligence period that really, really beats you up. Um, so I really appreciate you you sharing that story. What did you ultimately do to, to celebrate? Uh, we had we had, uh, had a few celebrations with the family and friends. And uh, I think we hired the Soho House in uh, one of these uh, places here in West London. Yeah, it's, you know what? I, I just like looking back now. You know, you, I feel like it's like a high mountain syndrome uh, I, I read recently where you really try, you, you just think, if only I can get there, you know, to kind of grab that thing, you know, building up to this uh, company, the old investment startup scaling up, you get to the due diligence sale process, start, you get it, you finally get there. And I remember thinking, is that it? I did. I'm <laughs> sorry to, to put a downer on this, but it wasn't. It was. I just remember thinking. So what's next? You know, what, what I'm gonna do next? It wasn't. It's not the end of the, of the journey. You know, you kind of get something, and then uh, it's like, yeah, there is there is a life after that. There is lots of things which which uh, which can't come to play. So it happened to me quite quickly, actually, you know, this euphoria of, of exiting, you know, and especially building up the, through the sale process and completion. It's really something you have to experience to understand how much pressure there are to, to you know, to kind of get this over the line. Yeah, very quickly to me came that the feeling of, okay, now... You know, it's, <laughs> I actually didn't think what to do next. <laughs> what is the, wow. what am I going to, well, first of all, with the money, you know, it's also the pressure of what you're going to do with this money. You have to do something, you have to invest, you have to, you know. <laughs> yeah, that created another, <laughs> another kind of whole world of new challenges, if you like. And I appreciate you sh sharing that. You know, we, we often talk to our founders, our clients about what is next post acquisition, right? Are you going to have, are you going to be working with the company for a little while? Do you want to buy a business? What were the goals financially? And what are you going to do professionally? And I think having a sense of what your life, who you'll be after the transaction makes that transitionary period easier, but it clearly like it hit you. I was racing to the mountaintop. I got, I planted the flag. Now what? Right. And that, that's a really tough moment for all of us. And people can say, oh, yeah, but you got all this money. Well, 
exactly like what do you what are you going to still do next you're not going to just sit in a rocking chair and count your dollars right that's not what we're about as entrepreneurs so i appreciate you sharing that um can you tell me what you guys are doing now because because you've gone on to create other businesses and and consult yeah i mean this journey after after the exit we uh, they asked me to stay myself in a company to essentially to run my company within the big company sure which I said yes. So I stayed quite actually longer than I thought I would. And I learned a lot, you know, with completely different the company culture. And it was really a big learning, a learning curve for me. And uh, I went to, I went traveling and, uh, you know, what to do next. I was, I did lots of public speaking, supporting uh, refugee entrepreneurs around Europe mainly, you know, in Berlin and, and in this country specifically refugee entrepreneurs. And yeah, I was, I had lots of kind of approaches from different things to do. And one of those approaches was a company from a group of guys from Norway, really smart people. They, they recognized there is a, you know, opportunity for gap in the market for what we were doing. And I got involved with this. It's called Mano. And we have we have six sites, now we have four sites, and it's growing quite successfully. We had some ups and downs after the COVID, obviously, but yeah, it's very, it's one of the market leaders in, in Norway in, in how you know smart and the way that they do business, it, it really is incredible. Uh, I have a, two or three projects myself here with different brands, but now what I... The latest we are doing is we are running the accelerator or venture builder for food and drink businesses and food technology, which is called Amplify. Uh, so we go from the idea to exit. And the three partners, one is a marketing uh, lady who had her own agency for a number of years. Another guy, a friend of mine, he's uh, specialized in funding. So he's got, he's got his own platform and uh, he's got a whole network of different investors. And I'm... I'm more into strategy and operations and, uh, and idealization. So we go from the idea to exit, helping entrepreneurs to, yeah, to kind of uh, sharpen up the ideas, to find the story, the brand, the place in the market, the offering, go to pitch deck, fundraising, launch, scaling up and, and, uh, and selling. I love the idea. <laughs> yeah. I love the idea of uh, an industry specific incubator, right? Bringing the experience of people that have gone through your your exact journey, right? That brings so much experience and insight. I'm sure that's incredibly rewarding too, to help those entrepreneurs. It is. I think I opened probably about 40 restaurants in my life and um, I feel like this is the right thing to do now. You know, it's, it, it is about money, of course, it's business, but it's also... I think having, looking back now, what I could have done better is having somebody to no, to make less mistakes and having somebody to hold my hand and to kind of confirm the decision-making and the strategy, especially when it comes to strategy. I would probably have shortened up my, my journey uh, from idea to exit by, by half at least. Uh, wow. So I feel like I can do this now for, you know, for people like, when I was uh, 20 years ago. That's great. And I, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been fantastic. I learned something on this for sure. I know our listeners will have gotten a lot out of this. So um, thank you. Are, do you have any kind of last words of wisdom 
things that you learned through your entrepreneurial journey that you want to share? Yeah, I think I have many, but one of them is that, you, you know, you, you are never hundred percent ready. You just go for it and learn along the way. That's great. That's great. Ed, and thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. 